probably wondering why we allowed Caleb to read, it's because we were going to give him a trial by fire. <laughs> and he did a beautiful job, didn't you think? Yeah. Amen. This morning as we turn, I, I, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 6 as we look in this particular passage. And <clears throat> one of the things that uh, we have learned as we've gone through the book of John is that John has an intention in writing. And the intent is that you, that you who sit this morning under the teaching of God's word, would come to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not your faith in the United States government, not your faith in your doctor, not the faith into your psychiatrist or uh, the neighbor that you have next door, but that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because as we've gone through this chapter, and particularly as we've gone through the first six chapters of the Gospel of John, we have seen two themes that John has used repeatedly. Repeatedly, he has talked about light and darkness. And he's talked about life and death. And it's interesting when we think of those two themes because that is really the condition that is in the world today. It's either light or darkness or death and life, one of the two. And as John writes his gospel, he wants you to understand that if you are outside of Christ, if you do not have a faith in Christ, if you are not his disciple, if you are not feeding upon the words that Jesus has spoken, then you're in darkness, you are dead. But if you are indeed someone who comes to Christ, you open the scriptures, you seek his words, you, you search out him by faith, by faith praying to one you cannot see or touch or hold, to one who has claimed to be the, the God in the flesh, the one who was with God in the beginning, who created everything, who through whom all things were created. If you indeed put, have put your trust in him, then you have, according to the scriptures, crossed over from death to life. So as you and I begin to work through this particular part of chapter 6, there are four things that I want to approach this morning very quickly that I want to, I want to help you understand from Jesus' teaching. Four particular points that he makes concerning what is happening in this story as John gives this narrative of the gospel. The first is that he, he asks us to check our motivation, our motivation for seeking him. Now, there is no secret that we are filled in a nation with a lot of churches in our day. There's a church almost every corner. In fact, if you go to certain cities in, in the south, you'll find uh, many churches in, in small towns. I, I was amazed as we were driving back from Pauly's Island. And, and by the way, thank you for allowing my family and myself to be away on vacation this past week. We had a glorious time. Um, someone, someone asked me, do you still love your family after spending a week with them? And I, I can tell you, yes, I still do, <clears throat> but there were moments. Um, uh, <clears throat> but it, it's so interesting because as we were driving back from vacation, one of the things I noticed is how many churches are in small towns. How many are there? And so as I, I thought about the fact that there are so many churches and so many people expressing a faith in Christ, the one thing that kept going through my mind is, why are there so many churches? And the other question that went through my mind is, why do people seek Christ? 
Why do people in our day and in our culture, why would they ever consider opening the scriptures to see the words or read the words of Jesus Christ? Have you thought about that? It seems like in the days we live that many aren't doing that. It seems that we have crossed a, a venue where our culture is now uh, a culture of death, not a culture of life. And it's really kind of hard to describe it this way because we love our country, don't we? We love, our, we love the traditions that we have as Americans. We, we have thrived in so many ways. And though we as a nation have had our share of, of trouble and, and struggle with sin, this nation as a nation is still a nation that people will literally break laws to enter in order to uh, enjoy the benefits of our country, our economy, our government. And so it, it, it just astounds me that we live in a time where there is the promise of so much life, but in fact we're living in a culture of death. And so Jesus, in the moments of these days that we have to live, asks us to ask ourselves, what is our motivation for seeking him? If you go back to chapter 6 and look in verse 22, notice how uh, it is coming from the miracles that were done. What miracles? Well, remember Jesus fed 5,000 people. And then as he left the, that crowd and sent his disciples across the water, he got to those disciples in the evening by walking on the water, displaying his power that he is the Lord of creation. He is the one not only through whom all things were created, he's the one who holds all things together. And so after these two miracles that John records for us, we come to this chapter in chapter 6 and verse 22, and we read these words, the next day the crowds had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake, realized <clears throat> of the lake, realized that the only boat that had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away. Verse 32, 23, Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord's giving thanks. And once the crowds realized that, they, that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in their boats and went to Capernaum across the sea in search of Jesus. Well, why were they searching for him? Well, verse Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, that's what that means, teacher, why did you, how did you get here? And Jesus' answer, notice his first words in this text, very truly, when you hear those words, your, your antenna should go up. When you hear those words, you should stop and ponder that what he is going to utter next is extremely important. And he says, I tell you, you are looking for, you are, you are looking for me not because of, not because you saw signs I performed, because you ate the loaves you had filled. One of the signs of a dark heart, a darkness that's in our hearts is when we come and seek Christ for personal reasons that have nothing to do with why he's called us. Churches can easily do that. You and I can begin meeting and gathering just for the sake of gathering. I, I've talked to people over the years in this church who said, well, you know, the church isn't what it used to be when I was, when I was younger. Well, thank God it's not, right? 
Because if it was the same way that it was when you were younger, that means that basically the church has not changed to adapt to the changes in our culture today. That we haven't reached people. Uh, I've talked to another person who said, you know, I miss the good old days. Well, what do you miss about the good old days? Well, I miss Catherine and Margaret Cowan. They were always at church. Well, y'all, they're in heaven. They have taken hold of all that we have hoped for. They are not just believing it by faith. They are in the presence of our God. And so when you think of that, then the, the whole purpose of the church is not to be a place where people come to feel comfortable. It's not a place where we come to just have our own, own uh, desires met. No, it's a place where we come to be challenged by the word of Christ where we come to say to ourselves, why am I here? What purpose did I wake up and go to all the trouble to come and worship at Center Church? Was it just to be seen by others that you love? Or is there something more important than going on here? And I, I dare would say that that's what Jesus was facing. You see, he had fed, fed 5,000. Actually, it was much more than 5,000. It was 5,000 men. It wasn't including the children and women who were there. And these, these children and women and men had been fed by Jesus and they saw that miracle and they were wanting to gather him and put him as a king and he would not have it because that wasn't his purpose in coming. His coming was to bring life in a culture of death. So when you and I begin to think of that, one of the things that Jesus challenges us this morning is, do I come to church because I want to know Jesus? Do I really come to Sunday school? Do I really spend my time in the effort of being a part of his body, the church, being challenged by his words, being changed by his teaching, being molded by his spirit in such measure that I resist the fleshly, deadly, dark, impulses of my heart that I make church into what I want it to be instead of Christ making me into what he wants me to be. You see, there's the challenge. Because that was the resistance that Jesus had when he was doing these miracles. He did the signs so that people would say, this is the one we've been waiting on, the one whom God was sending who would bring us life and all through the chapter, you see and hear these people saying, well, we know who he is. He's just a carpenter's son. We know he's just from Nazareth. We, we know who he is. He has nothing to contribute. But why is he able to do these miracles? The second thing that's important in the passage is when you look at the next section of Scripture in the, in the conflict that is happening here, you find what is a true and a genuine faith. Well, what does that mean, a true and genuine faith? Look very carefully at verse 27. He says, Do, you not, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, here's his words, what, or their, word, their question, what must I do? What must we do to do the works God requires? Now, up until that time, and even today, in many Christian lives, people think the work of God is basically doing the Ten Commandments. That's the work of God. 
So when you talk to anyone in our culture and you say, well, what is, what is the, the secret to life? They say, just living a good life. Well, I want you to know, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make people who were dead to God alive to God. And so if you've been quickened in your spirit to be alive to God, you suddenly become aware in your spirit that this is not your home. Your home is with God in heaven and you are simply passing through. And in that passing through, you realize that God has given you a great calling, a great, a great gift, a great benefit. We talked about this in Sunday school and youth group this morning from Ephesians, that God has forgiven us of our sins. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He has separated us from a people who are in darkness because he's given us the light of the gospel. And he's brought us from a life where we chose death and now we're choosing Life, which is really to know God. It's not that we do moral things as people. We can do moral things all around the world, and people do moral things. There are people who don't even believe in Christ and are very moral people, but that doesn't mean they know the life that God gives. Because the life that God gives is not what we accomplish. It's what God has accomplished for us and how we come to know the one who did that for us. His name is Jesus. And so when these people come and say, what must we do? Jesus, Jesus tells them what the work of God is. What is it? Well, if you go back to verse 29, Jesus said the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. Now be careful here. We could use that word believe in ways that are not the way Jesus is teaching. For instance, I can believe something but never put my trust in it. I can believe the sun will rise tomorrow or the sun will set tomorrow. But if I believe that's my last day, I'm going to live it differently. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this. Belief is not just a matter of intellectual knowledge. Belief always has an activity. If I believe there's a doctor who can help me overcome a cancer, I don't sit at home and hope he shows up at my front door. I go to his office. I demand to see his time. If I believe that there is food Let's say some of you have probably don't know the deliciousness of sunbeam bread, but if you, if you knew that, that at Lowe's Food there was only one loaf of sunbeam bread left on the shelf and you knew that that was the bread you needed to make that complete tomato sandwich that you grew in your garden, you're not going to sit at home and wait for someone from Lowe's Food to bring it to you. You're going to go out, get in your car, and drive to Lowe's and get it off the shelf before anybody else does. You see, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. It means that you wake up in the morning asking yourself, Lord, what is your will for me, not my will? It begins with that whole idea that that word of Christ becomes so important to me that I'm not going to let anyone else, including including Dr. Phil, or Oprah Winfrey, or Joe Biden, 
or any other politician persuade me that their words or their ideas are somehow going to bring me life. Only Christ can give me life and life in abundance. And so when Jesus says that it is to believe upon him, they said, interestingly enough, like most people today, well, what sign will you give us that we know that's true? He just fed 5,000 people. He just walked on the water. What will it take for you to believe in him? It's just so amazing, isn't it? How when you and I get deeper into the teaching of, the John, of John's gospel and we are challenged by the words of Jesus Christ, he is calling us to not darkness and not painting darkness as light, as light. He is not calling us to continue living a life of deadness. He is calling us to living a life that is life, not living a life claiming to be alive and walking in deadness. I grew up in South Carolina, and I want you to know that that's a, that's a rural culture in many parts of the state, and one of the great hobbies of people is to go hunting. Some of you enjoy hunting. Jay Luckwalt went hunting this past week, and he got his quota on deer. As far as I'm concerned, Jay Luckwalt should never kill a deer the rest of his life after how many deer he killed, he killed this past week or this past year. Well, Jay's going to probably give me the, dick, the Dickens after that. But the most amazing thing to me is how in South Carolina, hunters go out and spend an enormous amount of time to go into the woods and hunt for the big buck with the big horns, right? I mean, not just peg horns, one or two. They want the deer that has the 10 points on it, the 12-point deer. That's the deer that's called the trophy buck. And so what do we do? We, we would go out as men and we'd go into the woods and we would hunt hour upon hour for this deer. And when you see it, they are glorious. They are absolutely beautiful creatures. And as you watch them, the majestic creation that God has created in creating those deers is before you. And what do we do? We shoot it, take it home, and take it to a taxidermist and have it mounted on the wall and say, I did that. Why do we go to all that trouble? Because we want people to see what that deer was like when he was alive. And he's dead. He's never going to have that life again. Now, it seems kind of graphic in ways, but here's my point. That is what it's like to live the Christian life. Coming to church, going through the motion of Christian faith but never coming to Jesus on a daily basis for the ability to live life in him it's like mounting a stuffed animal and it's dead and it seems to have all the appearance of life but it it's not alive I fear that in the days that we live we are seeing the Christian faith in America become a dead religion because there is no life among people who love Christ. Well, how would we know if that life is there? There would be, first of all, joy. 
and peace and love and self-sacrifice and marriages being healed and people coming to see the changes that come in our lives and they want to know where the power comes from for that. That's what it is to be alive. So when you and I begin to deal with this passage about this issue of life, then it comes a third part then. If that's the truth, then what's the object of that faith that satisfies us? Well, notice in verse 35 through 38, she said, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. You know, my wife makes bread. I, I don't know about you ladies or other you men who might do baking, but there was a, a recipe that Fran Campbell gave to us years ago. It was a sourdough bread recipe. Have you ever seen a sourdough bread recipe? It's, a, it's got a starter, and the starter you have to mix up and put in the refrigerator and let it rot, I mean, let it age. And, and, and then when it's good and rot, you, you bring it out and you mix it with flour and you, you let it rise, and then you bake it in the oven. And let me tell you, even my dog knows the difference between sunbeam bread and that bread that Cindy makes. Because it's so much better, so much fresher, so much more life to it. And so as we eat that bread, I think of that when I read these words, I am the bread of life. I don't know any meal in my life. It could be the hardest, most difficult piece of chicken to cut. It could be the most chewy steak you've ever put in your mouth. But if there's good bread on the table, guess what? You've got a great meal. And when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he is talking about the fact that you and I will never know life as God intended until we come to him. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, please notice, he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Now, from a worldly point of view, from a world of darkness, from a world of death, people are saying, wait a minute, how can he feed us so we never eat again? How can he cause us to drink so that we never thirst again? He's not talking about the body, your physical needs. He's talking about the soul, the self, the thing that people are still trying to satisfy even today. Some of you remember what it was like before you came to Christ. You filled your life with all kinds of sensuality. Some of you thought the answer was in the money you make, so you poured yourself into your work and you, you made so much money that you're just ready to retire and you're saying that's it and you're still so empty. Or I should say you were empty. Some of you remember you thought it was beauty. So you spent all this time preserving the beauty of your youth and you, you, you even went to doctors to have the doctors adjust your, your wrinkles or take care of this or that so that you could have and retain some kind of beauty to your life. But none of it's satisfying. And when I look at the world and I see the world as we see it today, all of these endeavors, these transgenderisms and people struggling with this transgender issue, when I see the other issues in our culture, what I'm seeing is people who are hungry. What are they hungry for? They're hungry for life, and they need Jesus. That's what they need. 
But because they're in darkness and because they have been part of a culture of death, they believe the only answers for their life is what they believe is the solution. And none of those solutions are matching. And so when Jesus comes to us, he says, I am the bread of life. He is saying, listen, whatever struggles you face, whatever sins you deal with, whatever lacking in your life that you feel you're lacking, I am the one who can show you and lead you in the way of everlasting life. Joyful, peaceful, satisfying life. You know, we forget this in the church until we're around new Christians. I've got a, a cousin I saw this past week and, and his, his new wife, she's, she's almost like a model. She is just stunningly beautiful. And this model is someone who you would think has everything. She has plenty of money. She's been in real estate. She's, she's done so much in her life. At a young age, you think, wow, she's arrived. And, and one day, the man that she was in love with suddenly passed away, and her whole world was sent into a tailspin. And as she tells of her, by the way, she tells us on Facebook, not in a, in a crass way, but in a way that tells people, I found something I've, I, ne I need you to know about. As her life was tailspinning, she came to hear about Christ and started attending church. And as you followed her on Facebook, one of the things you began to realize is she would take pictures of her Bible as she would wake up every morning. And she's feasting on God's word every morning. And as she does that, she's, she says, this really works. This is amazing. And in her testimony, she says, I wake up every morning and I'm looking forward to hearing God speak to me through his word. And it refreshes my soul and cleanses my conscience and gives me hope for the day. And she said, this is, y'all, I know you think I'm crazy. She's talking to people who are unchristian. She says, I know you think I'm crazy, but this is real. This past week we saw her after a year of seeing that kind of Facebook and she found out I'm a preacher, which is usually the death knell, you know. Uh, even in my family, it's really weird being a preacher in a family because many people kind of hold you at arm's distance. See, this is one of the joys of you not being a minister is you don't have to tell someone, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They go, click, they just cut you off. You don't have that problem. You have the great freedom of telling people this life that Jesus has given you has changed you. Well, when she found out I was a minister, she kind of went that way too. She kind of did, you know, uh oh, okay, better watch what I say. But over time, as, as we've gotten to know each other, one of the things that happened was we were sitting on the beach and, and I said, I, I wanted you to know I so appreciated your posts on Facebook and your testimony of what's happened to you. It was like a different person was born at that moment. It was like a connection was made. She knew what I was talking about even though we almost spoke in code and all the rest of the family were just oblivious. And as we started talking, you could see the animation in her life. You could see how she was saying, you know, I, I was in a Bible study this past week and I was just learning about this, about God, about this, about God, and this, about God. And I just can't, I just, it's just amazing. And I thought, there it is. 
There's the life. There's the bread of life. He's at work. When Jesus tells us true and genuine faith is a part of that coming and feasting upon him, he does not want you to think about the table of the Lord where you come and take the bread and the wine. He is talking about a presence of him in your life on a daily basis that renews and changes and leads you, even in the most depressing of days, to live with great hope. Now let, let me just ask you, are you feasting on that bread? Because if you're not, you're in darkness and you're in death. And it's very easy for Christians to slip back into the old way of living Instead of coming to Christ and calling upon his name and looking for him to do what we cannot do for ourselves, it is very easy for the Christian to say, I believe in Jesus, now I've got to live the Christian life on my own power. And you'll never be able to do it. Why? Because his word is life. And when we take his word and we take it into our hearts and we begin to say, Lord, change me, mold me, change me in such ways that I believe and trust in your word and obey it, only then will God show up and show us that he is really God. Go back to chapter 11 in Hebrews. You'll find a list of people. God said, believe me. And they were like, what? That's, that's, not, that's not normal, God. And then they believed God and God did something. There's a pattern there. God says, listen, if you trust me, if you obey me, then I will bless you. And so he says, come to me by faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is believing that God's word is enough. I don't have to trust in anything else but God's word. And if I follow it, he will prove that he is God to me. It brings us to that fourth thing that Jesus is teaching about being the bread of life. And this is a quite powerful statement because as you think about it, he says, I, those who come to me and eat of me, they will have life. Notice how the response was of the people. They were still stuck on trying to feed their earthly passions. Verse 49, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Talking about when Moses led the children of Israel out and they had no food. And God told Moses, tell the people that tomorrow I'm going to give them bread from heaven. And this manna came from nowhere. And God said, do not store this up. Take only what you need for today. They didn't listen. They took what they needed for today, but then they thought, I'm going to be wise. I'm going to store some up. So they did. Guess what happens the next day? If you go back and read, it rotted. And so Jesus says, I'm that manna. I can't live on one particular moment where God's worked in my life, I have to allow him to work every day in a new way. Every day. And so when you think about this, in verse 50 he says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven. Anyone may eat and not die. Isn't that glorious? 
the generosity of our Father. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. He's, not ta he's talking in metaphors. He's talking in that, that, that understanding that if you and I will take the time to look at him and say, Jesus, speak and I will follow. In those moments, God is telling us he will give us life and life in abundance. You know what the problem is? I don't always believe that. That's the problem. We come to a fork where either we trust God's word or we don't. And so often I'm tempted not to, aren't you? But that doesn't dissuade Christ from you and calling you. He is constantly reaching out, constantly calling, constantly inviting you. Come and eat and feast of me. And I will give you life. You know, if we could start this worship service over, I think we could really be changed by it. What do I mean? If we came in every Sunday with the anticipation that God was going to do something in this hour, and we called upon his name, we would not leave here the same. If we went back into our neighborhoods and we began to love people the way Jesus asked us to love them, not because they deserve it, they don't. Not because they, we're, we're good people, we're not. But because Jesus said, love your enemies, forgive those who hurt you. If we did that, I really believe that we would see our county transformed and people changed not because of our good works but because the life that Jesus flows through us his name was Kevin Murdoch in closing this morning I know some of you are getting antsy his name is Kevin Murdoch he was a roommate of mine at the Citadel when I was a freshman I was so on fire for Jesus I, I would talk to the paint on the wall about Jesus I would climb the highest building. I remember one of my, one of my uh, senior, uh, senior uh, cadets coming up. He was a sergeant of our platoon and said, Howard, why are you here? And I said, because my Savior sent me, sir. And, and he went, who is your Savior? And I said, Jesus Christ. And, and you could just tell in the way he looked at me, he thought, oh boy, we got one here. <laughs> and so... And so as, as that day progressed, you could tell all the other classmen of the, who were in charge were kind of looking at me, you know, making sure I didn't get a gun or a knife or anything like that. But Kevin had to live with me, and so in living with me, I felt like, well, gosh, I just need to kind of tone it down. He doesn't need to hear that 24-7. But I was on fire for Jesus. I was ready to convert the radiator in the corner. But as the year progressed and I began to live with Kevin, I began to say, you know, I, I just need to live the life that Christ has called me to live with Kevin. And so I just began to read my Bible every night. And so before lights out, before taps was played, I would read my Bible and, and, and slowly but surely over time, Kevin would, would look down and say, are you getting ready to turn the light out? And I said, yeah, I've just got to finish one more passage. And he said, well, what are you reading? 
And I'd say, well, I'm reading this. And I'd tell him what my particular passage I was reading from the Gospels. And he'd start asking questions. And I mean, y'all, let me tell you, that was a, a sweet time in my life when God was very near to me. And I wanted to do his will so badly. The whole semester went by and I never told Kevin about how he could receive Christ as a Savior. At least I didn't give him the four spiritual laws. But that summer, on a July, hot South Carolina July afternoon, he called me at home while we were on break. And he said, Robert, I have to tell you something. And I said, what is it, Kevin? He said, I've received Jesus Christ as Lord. And instead of going, well, praise God, thank you, Lord, I said, how did that happen? Because I thought it was all about me. And what I didn't realize was that God's word, the word of life, was at work through me and through others. And God was wooing. God was calling. God was offering his words of life. And Kevin heard them and simply prayed a simple prayer. God, if you're truly real, and if Jesus is your son, then come into my life, forgive me of my sins. And from this day, I will start to follow you. Are you doing that? You know, we're thinking about this church and we're thinking about our future and trying to grow our church. This church will not grow because we have certain music. This church will not grow because we have certain political stance. This church will not grow because we have some gimmick we do. This church will only grow when the word of life lives in you and people out there see it and they know it's different. And they become strangely attracted, not to you, to Jesus. So over the summer, we're going to be offering opportunities for you to draw nearer to God. We'll be talking about more of those as we get into it. But my prayer, my prayer is that you will not come into this place one more Sunday without reading the scriptures that we're going to be talking about before we ever open the scriptures here. My prayer is that you are on your knees asking God, God, change me so that I love you more than anything else in the world, that I put you before all other things. I can't do it, but if you come into my life, I know that you can do it. God, change me. When you pray that kind of prayer, I believe that God does things that we are just absolutely overwhelmingly astonished about. And you'll be asking people like Kevin when he tells you, I want to receive Christ or I've received Christ. You'll be saying, well, how in the world did that happen? It will happen because the word of life, the bread of life, is feeding people where they need to be fed saving this culture from its death that we're seeing and we're so worried about. Well, let me tell you, when you look in the eyes of Jesus, there's nothing that we have to fear. 
not one thing. Would you pray with me?